live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is part two of the Holocaust series, which we started last week. This week, we're going to be tackling the concept of Holocaust denial. But just before we start, I have been asked multiple times, actually from when we started recording, and it turned up a bit this week after our last episode, so I must ask you now. People have been wondering, how do you discover all the information that you put together? Everyone knows that you're very credible, and people know that if Rabbi Hirsch says it on a podcast... I mean, where do I find it? Yes, especially because last week's was... There was a lot of... I mean, so very unusual. People just Uh, don't know. Okay, so I I guess I have the basic building blocks of history, which then allows me to know which areas are of interest, and I can focus on it and do research. I mean... For this series of five on the Holocaust, I read seven books, so um, two for each episode almost. Actually, no, nine books, because I read two which I hoped would help, but they didn't. So you're saying the internet isn't a complete replacement for actually reading hundreds and hundreds of pages? Uh, Yeah, yeah, there is uh, background work. Okay, so let's define Holocaust denial in legal terms. It is denying either the actual genocide of Jews in World War II or denying the Nazis' deliberate intentions of exterminating the Jews, meaning that deniers say the Holocaust is a hoax or it's a wild exaggeration of numbers and basically is a deliberate Jewish conspiracy to advance the interests of their people. And in recent years, Holocaust denial has become defined internationally as anti-Semitism motivated by hatred of Jews. And as a hate crime, it is prosecutable. So someone who knowingly denies the Holocaust can be taken to court in many countries. And even though in America, for instance, there is you know protection of free speech, um, there is a famous verdict from Supreme Court Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes in 1919 that free speech wouldn't protect a man who was falsely shouting fire in a theatre and causing a panic. Hmm. Um, So it overrules the right to free speech if it is a deliberate false statement of fact. It's uh, constitutionally unprotected, I guess is the way to put it. Sorry, do forgive me for butting in. Why, can you explain why would we need an entire podcast on this topic? I mean, I'm sure I'll find out, but surely it's quite obvious that deniers deny. I mean, it's anti-Semitism. The accusations are completely absurd. There's, we've got evidence as much as you can wish for. Isn't that really the end of the podcast? <laughs> uh, you would think so. Denial, however, is more complex than assumed. The departure point to see this is the famous High Court case in England, in London, in the year 2000. As many are aware, David Irving, an author of a number of books on World War II, sued 
Professor Deborah Lipstadt, who is a Jewish American professor of history in the UK, because she had written that he had distorted evidence about the Holocaust and that he was a Holocaust denier. Now, he is the one that brought the case for libel to court, which means that he was confident that Holocaust revision was arguable in a court of law, which bears thinking about. It's true he lost on the unanimous verdict, but there were some very shaky moments. And the very fact that he was happy to be there in the first place is somewhat unsettling. Now, Goebbels famously said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. But that's through propaganda. This was going to be cross-examined in court and he turned up. Another important point is that denial can sometimes be built on facts provided by people who are on our side. The most glaring example is from the Auschwitz State Museum in Poland, where for 40 years after the war, they stated that 4 million people had lost their lives there. It was enshrined in stone at the entrance of the museum until um, 1990 around, whereas the figures accepted nowadays are around 1.3 million. This is a major error. And even though now all the figures have been correctly changed, the fact that it was claimed to be three times higher than it was for so long shows clearly how unreliable the Holocaust data is, and even from Auschwitz. So basically, you know, the Jews just make up the numbers if they feel they can get away with it, and everyone feels sorry for them. And bear in mind, just by the way, that in that libel case, Deborah Lipstadt never put a single Holocaust survivor on the stand by choice. What was she afraid of? So denial is less straightforward than assumed. Now, it's true, the Holocaust is one of the most documented events in all of human history. And there's still people alive today. Tens of thousands, because we're not only including victims, but bystanders, perpetrators, witnesses, many of whom have testified, yet denial still exists, goes to court. But a second point leads on from this. It is so documented that it actually becomes difficult to grasp from two perspectives. Firstly, the historical perspective, being able to grasp the amount of history that I need in order to have a comprehensive picture of the Holocaust. I mean, put it this way, if you hear about the Holocaust from a survivor or an eyewitness, and even if all you do is hear about the period when they were in the camp and on the death marches, so you, you know, you avoid all the years beforehand, the ghettos, etc., it's going to take months of your life. And even if they telescope that, all you have is one person's experience. And since it was vastly different for a French Jew, a Greek Jew, a Lithuanian Jew, you just don't have the breadth of understanding of the Holocaust. And what you know from one place could be the exception, doesn't have to be the rule. Yeah. So, you know, the, the vastness is an eye-opener. I remember when I felt, you know, I'd covered Poland and then find out that Lithuania was very different and France is very different. So, you know, what do people know about the Holocaust? Basically headlines. Six million people were killed in concentration camps, which, by the way, is completely untrue. Two million were killed in small mass graves in unidentifiable locations across Eastern Europe. So how would we know that figure? We'll get there. Hmm. Two million were killed in five death camps, none of which are Auschwitz and they have no visible landmarks. 
So what people know is actually from a Holocaust denial perspective, an academic perspective, wrong. And there were Nazi policy changes throughout the war, which allows for denial. The final solution is the fourth. It's 33 to 39, 39 to 41, 41 to 42, 42 onwards. So the breadth of history is a challenge, and that's not the biggest one. The biggest challenge for, let's say, the average non-Jewish individual is to philosophically comprehend the level of mass murder that was perpetrated by the most cultured nations, you know, Germany and Austria, and carried out within view of Europe's inhabitants. It is far more difficult to get my head around than other genocides, Cambodia, Armenia, because they take place in one location. And the reasons are easily understood. It's power, it's land, it's money, it's regional politics. But here it's an entire continent and the crimes are being committed by people who have never met their victims and they stand to gain nothing by their extermination. And that makes it almost unbelievable. Why would people travel a thousand miles to kill other people for no gain? Although you could argue that there was power and land almost involved because Hitler by getting... You're talking about the average soldier who's carrying out these orders. Right. Oh, you mean... For what? Mm. And it's not carried out by, you know, a barbaric semi-civilized nation, but by Germany in a legally mandated way so it becomes an incomprehensible crime intellectually not just because of the number and it requires you to believe that that ordinary men but ordinary women were willing to participate in mass murder they signed up for it and that clouds the mind to being able to absorb this thing as as being true and we can't underestimate this challenge for the average non-Jew with a basic knowledge of 39 to 45, with, with no knowledge really of Eastern Europe, they know a little. But why, when, where, what were the causes? Nothing. So it doesn't take much to upset the apple cart, and this is even in Europe. In America, it's an even bigger problem. In places like South America, forget about it. They don't even know that there were Jews in Europe in the first place. So without pre-knowledge, you are easily misinformed. I mean, besides for the history, which it's obviously important to know history, do we do we really care? Does it affect us? Do we not? Like, Shouldn't we, should we just almost move on and, and get on with our lives rather than uh, trying to figure okay. it out? So, <laughs> listen, isn't number one on the list of things to deal with? But as we will see, it isn't the denial itself which is the center of the problem. Ignorance isn't the issue. I mean, Let's face it, apparently, most non-Jews haven't listened to my podcast. Yet. <laughs> Yet, right. So, so they're uninformed, okay? Big deal. Denial comes from a place that defines the Jews as liars. That for the last 2,000 years, that's what Jews are like. They live off the non-Jews. And that's how they got the state of Israel, and they get international sympathy, and Wiedergut uh, machen, and they take land from the Palestinians. There's an agenda behind denial, which we will get to, and that's really why to deal with it or to know about it. I have to tell you, even for Jews, the very act of walking through a place of mass extermination gives a perspective. The size of Auschwitz-Birkenau, for instance, you read books, you watch films, it still remains somewhat of a mystery. And I can tell you from the, I don't know, 150 groups I've taken to Poland, that it doesn't matter what the age is, 
it comes as a surprise. So there is something there that is unknown. And ultimately, I have to say, it's going to be difficult to explain the Holocaust without resorting to a spiritual definition of anti-Semitism, which we'll come to next week. Okay, so perhaps to understand who it is and how. So denial really took off in the 60s and 70s. In 1973, a book was produced called Auschwitz-Lüge Lies. Another one was called The Hoax of the 20th Century. And essentially, there are three main claims. The first is that there were no gas chambers. The second, that there weren't six million victims. I mean, initially, that actually meant there was no mass murder. And when it became illegal to deny the Holocaust, it became Holocaust minimization. There were, I don't know, one and a half million, which is very fashionable nowadays. And you escape prosecution in, I don't know, Austria, England, Canada, various places. So that was the second claim. And the third is it was not part of a master plan, meaning... Just victims of war. Yes. So all three deniers or or schools of denial agree that anti-Semitism existed in Germany. You can't get away from that. But what happened during the war was, yeah, the outcome of war wasn't planned. And there are infamous people involved. There's a guy called David Irving, who we mentioned. He has no training in history, but he's still written a number of books about World War II. He claims to be a an historian, although he has no degree. In fact, he doesn't have a degree in anything, never mind history. And he wrote Hitler's War in 1977. And mainstream publishing houses, uh, HarperCollins, uh, even Penguin, published his books. I say even Penguin because they then published Lipstadt's book, about denying the Holocaust, and they would be sued by Irving, that they had a paperback edition of of his uh, writing. So that means that just like the denial itself, the denier will have points of strength, isolated ones potentially, but they give him credentials. And eventually, reviewers of the book would conclude that You know, his work has a a consistent bias, that there's misinterpretation and manipulation, but it's subtle. It's not open lies. He's not an idiot as such. He published the Fred Leuchter report for the trial of Eric Zundel, who was a Holocaust denier in Canada. And Leuchter went to examine the extermination camp in Auschwitz, and he concluded that there were no gas chambers, and that was all part of a myth. Perhaps the most disturbing thing that we see from him is his treatment of uh, survivors and survivor accounts. He basically labels them liars, and that the numbers tattooed on their arms are fakes, made for financial gain, which is obviously very painful to hear. So that's basically a snapshot of Irving. There's a guy called Forisson who argues that the numbers in gas chambers, it would have, they would never have fitted in there in the amount of time available, in the amounts claimed. And he keeps demanding proof that people were killed in gas chambers, although he doesn't define what he considers proof. And of course, you're not going to find a witness who went through the gas chamber and came out alive and can testify about the others. I actually remember once hearing about, so is that a true story? Someone who went through the gas chambers and survived. I remember reading a... There 
are accounts of it. I don't know if any of them are legitimate. There definitely are accounts of people who were placed in the gas chamber and for one reason or another, they were not gassed because they didn't have the numbers or, or whatever. Yes, that, that did happen. You have another denier called Zundel, who is basically bent on rehabilitating the German people. He says that post-war Zionism has used the German nation as a punch bag and that the mess in the Middle East is a Jewish problem resulting from the Holocaust. You can almost hear the argument. In other words, in 1945, a half a million Eastern European Jews displaced local Arabs because of a conflict that took place in Europe. You know, why would that be right? And there would have been no wars in the Middle East if the Jews haven't, hadn't turned up. So these are the, the deniers that we have to deal with and the types of denial that they're involved with. Right. They're either denying it happened or the extent of it in some way. Yes, and bearing in mind that there are certain places which almost lend themselves to denial. Don't know how many of the audience have ever been to Treblinka. It's a place second only to Auschwitz in terms of numbers of Jews killed. There were 875,000 Jews murdered there. It's very small. There are almost no survivors in 1945, maybe 50 people, as opposed to probably 15,000 people from Auschwitz. And it was already closed down by the end of 43. So nowadays, in the last 20 years, when Auschwitz has proven to be harder to use for deniers, especially after the Irving case in 2000, they've moved to the death camps. There's very little testimony, no photos, no visible signs. But how do they deal with the issue of the, of the numbers? If 875,000 people disappeared, it's, it's a huge figure. Where, where'd they go? So there, there are various theories. One is that the Jews were secretly transported to Palestine by a, a Zionist underground. Or... Large numbers of Jews died in the bombings in Germany, the bombing in Dresden, for instance. I mean, if you don't have a handle on European history and politics, so maybe, maybe that's what happened. There's a report in February 46, which mistakenly added a zero to the Anglo-American committee's total of Jews living in post-war Poland. 800,000 survivors instead of 80,000. This one piece of paper is now going to be the headline for deniers. It sounds impressive. And every time you get this one line, you have to demolish it painstakingly. So, you know, denial is, is propaganda that Hitler himself would have been proud of. It's an entire industry. And everybody's heard of Holocaust denial, whereas, I don't know, other conspiracy theories, uh, the moon is made out of cheese, uh, have far less airtime. Yeah, so you're saying it's really a double a double idea. You're saying that the data of the Holocaust is just too vast yep. and too varied. And you're also saying the concept is just so challenging, it's just difficult to believe it happens. Yep. Those are two main principles. There's another principle, and that is we have to understand, as I mentioned at the beginning, that it's motivated by pure anti-Semitism, which is worthwhile for us to know you know, seeing the naked face of anti-Semitism in a world where that's no longer obvious and where we might be fooled into thinking that, you know, everybody loves us. This brand of anti-Semitism hates us because we exist, not because we control their banks or stole their land. Perhaps they have, they have a lot easier time today because now anti-Semitism is, is veiled. Under, yep. It's also veiled under anti-Zionist. Yep. So you can always get fooled into thinking that it's, it's yes. not so real. But let's perhaps see how deniers set about building 
their case. There, there are really four strategies. There is the narrow focus, the lack of response to their challenges, the context, and equating tragedies. We'll go through them. The first is they focus on specific issues. They find a fault in one area and expand on it. Let's take survivors as the classic example. They will probe survivors until they find a problem in details. Uh, did the selection send you to the left or to the right? Now, normally we'd think of right as life, left as... But what happens if on that day the train was facing the other way? So the selection took the place the other way, right? And, and you're saying no left was life. And, and, you know, when you got off the train, was it morning? It was, but you said earlier that the sun was shining strongly, so it must have been later in the day. So maybe your memory is faulty because it never happened. And these people spent three days and nights or whatever it was on a cattle truck with dead people all around them. I mean, and, and you're putting them through this. And a survivor is not a trained witness they're going to have difficulty in describing certain things. English, anyway, is not going to be the first language. So it's like lawyers in a cross-examination with an agenda. And they'll shred them. They'll, they'll find somewhere where the survivor slips up and discredit the entire testimony, which is exactly why Deborah Lipstadt refused to call any survivors to the stand. She couldn't risk small details being challenged because it has an impact on the jury. And more than that, the survivor then gets emotional, understandably. And falls apart on the witness stand. It happened live on TV. You can still access it on the internet, the Donahue interview. And once the deniers have got a wedge, something that's wrong small, they make it equally true on a bigger picture. And you can readily see how with an audience and a guy who's a good speaker, you can land body blows quite easily based on, you know, pat one-liners. That means that all survivor stories become suspect. That which we use as our main ingredient to know is now suspect. It's out the window. Then allied to that is the fact that numbers have been downgraded quite dramatically. We mentioned Auschwitz, but Majdanek's the same. They were The numbers were halved from the original 360,000. And anyway, in the West, Soviet numbers were always dismissed as simply propaganda. And it's the Soviets who liberate all the camps in Eastern Europe. Um, there are errors before data was clarified. The Americans after the war, they talk about 22 camps with gas chambers. It's probably near a six. So now all numbers are suspect and it gets worse because there are narratives which are not just sloppy, but actual lies. I've got a book at home about a child in Majdanek written by a guy called Benjamin Vilkomirsky, who describes his ordeals during the Holocaust as a child in Majdanek, amongst other places. It won major prizes. It was translated into nine languages. It is totally fictional. The guy was never in Eastern Europe during World War II. He's Swiss. He's a liar. I remember, I remember there's a famous fictional Holocaust book. I think the boy in, the the boy boy in striped yeah, pajamas. Yeah, no, there are, but that was never passed off as being true. It was officially fictional. Right. But this guy pretended that this was his autobiography. I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but uh, nowadays you find if somebody wants a good drosh, they'll make up a story about the Holocaust, which from a spiritual perspective is very dangerous, inspiring an audience with half-truths. There, there is a story about the 93 Bisiakov girls who committed suicide in Krakow uh, during the war because they did that rather than submit to the Nazis. It's fictional. 
even though it appeared in the New York Times in January 43. The story. And there's a park in Israel named after them now. Park, streets, Rehov Tzadi Gimel, Rehov Hatishim Vashalosh. Yeah, plenty of them. It never happened. The story about turning Jews into soap, right? Or the, the, that, that was their fate. It's untrue. It features in the Nuremberg trials. It has no basis in fact. It's true that there were bars of soap on which RIF was printed, which was taken to mean RJF, Reiner Jüdisches Fett, uh, right, the, you know, Jewish fat. But that was a rumor. The Nazis encouraged it because of its sort of frightening element. But RIF actually meant uh, Reichsteller für Industrielle Fettversorgung, right? Wow. And all the other so, gruesome details, the lampshades out of human skin. That, yeah, that actually did exist. Uh, but that was very specific. That comes into the same category almost as the experiments. Um, but when you're talking across the board or across the camps, those things, you know. Um, so it, it's not a case of they are mad, I'm right next they are mad. I am right, but I have to prove it rather than dismiss it. And that's the focus on details. Then there's the lack of response to their challengers. They will take out a full page advert in the national press with, I don't know, five questions of challengers and no one responds. What do you mean non-response? What? So what I mean is as follows. In a debate, the most important thing to understand is that it's much easier to ask a question than to give an answer. You know, we have the same thing in outreach. So they can have a full page with five statements from Holocaust deniers, each of which would take three pages to answer. You're not going to take out 15 pages in the Times and no one's <laughs> going to read it anyway, right? And you're on the defensive. So that the whole narrative, the whole psychology of the narrative is is wrong. And that's, for instance, why the Irving trial is so different and was such an opportunity, because there's a judge, there's a jury, and there's a long period of time, time to listen to a reasoned response. The deniers had to be specific. They could be cross-examined. And that's why he was comprehensively destroyed. He was found to have deliberately misrepresented, distorted evidence, ignored evidence, but in an advert, very catchy. Third, they take lines out of context. In a book written about the Holocaust, a reliable book, it says sources for the study of gas chambers are rare and unreliable. Oh, right. Rare <laughs> and unreliable. But you have to read the rest of the paragraph, which says that even though Hitler and the Nazis made no secret of their war on the Jews, sources are rare and unreliable because the Nazis systematically eliminated all traces and care was taken to dispose of the bones and the ashes so it's taken out of context and they never give definitive statements about their own standpoint it's like you know Muhammad Ali said float like a butterfly sting like a bee <laughs> they obscure issues about Hitler's involvement they talk about functionalism and they expand it to mean intentionalism which means as follows Hitler never visited any of the camps as far as we're aware so they say that proves he was never involved. But that means functionally. He wasn't running around doing this stuff. That doesn't mean intentionalism. It doesn't mean he didn't intend wiping out the entire race of Jewish people. Just picking up on the gas chambers denial, what do they say the rooms with the showers and the Zyklon B and the, the fingernails and the walls and all the 
the sort of concrete evidence we Cyclone B wasn't invented in the war. It's a de-louser. Gets rid of lice. Which would have been needed in the camps, you're saying. Well, in the camp, if it was a camp, I mean, you know. But let's say <laughs> right. it was a camp. Yeah, it would have been needed. And the fourth thing is they equate what the Allies did in bombing Dresden or Hiroshima uh, without discussing exact numbers. Because when you're talking about really high body counts, you know, once you get to 50,000, how much different is that to 6 million? Once there's an enormous tragedy, so numbers, you know, take a backseat and, and they're both targeted murder. So in a debate, you, you can't weigh up tragedy. You can't say uh, we suffered more. So you downgrade the whole thing and you make the point that there was equal injustice on all sides. And, you know, the victors were monsters, too. So what it at, at minimum, what it basically comes down to is c'est la guerre. That's what happens in war. Jews died. I've got news for you. So did Goim. So, you know, um, and I'll give you an example of focusing on specifics using an exaggerated claim. But this one was cross-examined in court. So ultimately it fell apart. So Leuchter had claimed that the Nazis who dropped Zyklon B pellets into the gas chambers would have died from exposure and therefore they couldn't have used gas for mass murder. So the judge challenges him line by line. He says, you know, a, a quote, you told us about people on the roof who dropped the gas down that they would be committing suicide, but it would take a matter of minutes before the gas got to them, wouldn't it? Unquestionably. But if they closed the vent and got off the roof, there would be nothing to concern them, would there? Well, if they got off the roof, but at some point they do have to do an inspection to determine whether the parties are dead. Yes, but they send in the Zonda commanders to do that, and they don't care what happens to them because they're Druze. All right. So, if somebody is on the roof with a gas mask, you agree now that they've got all kinds of time to get off the roof after they've closed the vent. Perhaps. Right. So that's what happens when you cross examine them, when you've got time and, you know, the ability. So all historians make mistakes. But if all of your mistakes lead conveniently in one particular direction only, that's not a mistake. That's a lie. And that's why, you know, Richard Evans book on David Irving is called Lying About Hitler. Now, at one stage, you might think this is childish. What they're doing is childish. It's childish if it harms no one or it's dismissed. This is harmful. This is uh, anti-Semitic and unfortunately sometimes quite successful. Now, the answers are relatively easy, but we should make an effort to know them. And back in the day when there were a lot more survivors, you know, 30, yeah. 40 years ago, it was, it was way more painful than right. it would be today. Right. I would say, you know, my other podcasts make little difference to what you will do with your life. It would make a difference to what you know. But this might help the Jewish cause. Yeah. But as you mentioned, you said it needs knowledge, sophistication, a court of law. Okay, so firstly, next week, you will have a comprehensive answer. Uh, but actually, you need a first line of defense, which is also part of next week's. And that will keep you going in 90% of cases. And also, it's important to understand the deeper reason to be discussing this type of topic specifically during this period of the three weeks. Let me leave you with two questions, though because whenever we have a two-part series, you have to leave it on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Did gas chambers exist? Which you brought up earlier. So I've been to enough of them in Dachau, Mauthausen, Theresien, but they're just concrete buildings. 
besides the fact that I said that Zyklon B was invented pre-war, how do you know that there was ever gas used in any of these buildings? You've got a delusional tour guide who you've hired to take you there, but who says? Second question, if I told you that Hitler never ordered any Jews to be killed, nor did he sign any command at any time during the war for Jews to be sent to the camps, what would you say? Probably say you're crazy, in all due respect. Okay, so I have news for you. You would actually have to answer as follows. You're right that no written evidence at all has been found which shows Hitler directly ordering any Jews to be murdered. At all. Wow. But, but is... That's for leave to the next, next one. Week. <laughs> and this particular podcast is in memory of Tzvi ben Yehuda, whose yacht site is on the 22nd of Thomas. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch, for another very thought-provoking episode. And as you said, very relevant to today. Not only as in relevance with anti-Semitism, but something we can actually learn from, not just from yes. an intellectual perspective. And we'll see you not next week, but the next uh, part. We'll, we'll put out the next episode in a couple of days' time. Okay, thank you. <laughs>